Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. Welcome to this episode of Inspiring Women, and I am very pleased this morning to be talking to Dr. Sabina Schick. She is University of Chicago's Director of the Program on Global Environment, and she's also a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. She lectures on the environment, urban studies, geographical sciences. She is the faculty director of Chicago Studies. She co-leads the Environmental Frontiers Initiative at the Mensueto Institute for Urban Innovation. Now, her research focuses on the relationship of humans to environmental change related to health, livelihoods, and migration. Sabina is on a variety of different boards. She's a thought leader. She has her PhD from UC Davis um, in agricultural economics. She has an economics degree from the University of Wisconsin. And Dr. Sheck, I'm really pleased to have you on Inspiring Women. Thank you so much for having me, Laurie. I'm really excited to be here and I've been inspired by many women. So hopefully I can try to do the same myself. I bet you can. I mean, you're in a really, really interesting field, the environment, global warming, change, what's happening there and how this connects to people's lives. So I'm really looking forward to this. But why don't we get started? Often, um, the way I start in Inspiring Women is just, why don't we start with what are you doing right now? What are you doing in your professional life? What are you focused on today? Well, today I'm grading. <laughs> so I, um, my students have been working this quarter on um, something called water stories, where they've investigated a water issue and have communicated it through data storytelling. And, and I've given them the option to present it through a format of their choice. So I'm reading a very compelling set of research summaries, some creative writing, listening to a couple podcasts, looking at websites, all around water and water data. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. I've also got a couple administrative tasks, and then I'm work. I'm finishing up a paper actually on a environmental con- connections to migration in Cambodia, and so that's on my plate all for for Friday here today. <laughs> that's a, that's a big Friday. So maybe even give us a little bit of the career trajectory. So Sabina, in terms of you know, you started off with an economics degree, and you do a lot of research. You're a thought leader in this area in the environment. How did that happen? What what sparked your interest? And you know, you took it to such a strong degree of study and the research that you do. Give us a bit of the background there. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I grew up with a quite a bit of exposure to nature, but I didn't really think of it as something to study um, or that I could study until you know several years into college. Probably, I was you know interested in people and behaviors. I was quite inclined towards the social sciences, which is not really the place you see as much environmental study, at least back then. I found economics as a social science really fit my quantitative leaning, and I found it a sort of a good place to study human behavior. Then when I was in college, I was exposed to both agricultural and environmental economics and found that a really compelling place to study. So to think about how people relate to their natural surroundings, how people influence environmental change and how they're affected by environmental change. And then when I much later came to Chicago, 
I was able to get involved with a lot of the environmental organizations here in Chicago. Chicago is a very environmental city. I mean, not just you know in its surroundings being next to the Great Lakes, but there's a strong environmental community here. So I was really able to get more involved in sort of that local environmental community and to better understand how um, those types of stakeholders worked on advocating for environment. I can have applications of my research on very relevant topics in, in Chicago and beyond. Well, it also seems like, you know, the work that you do has a relationship to policy and the connection in terms of the urban environment with policy. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, so much of within the urban environment, so much of the way we even just move around the city has to do with policy and planning and how cities came to be. Um, You know, Chicago was uh, settled because of its proximity to water. So understanding how then policy influence the way that we use water in Chicago and beyond is something that I think a lot about. Uh, We can also think about historical policy and how that influenced um, some urban conditions like segregation or inequality. And so if we can kind of investigate how those different types of policies influenced conditions that exist today, we could think about how to use policy to undo certain conditions and advance certain other ones that create sort of equitable urban environment. And I've read about you, Sabina, that in talks that you've done, your parents came to the United States and became citizens, you know, back in the 70s of the United States, you said that you grew up in nature, so you were always drawn there. Was this something that you knew you wanted to do early on? I mean, back environmental policy, today we all know Mm -hmm. about climate change, but I don't know if we did back in, you know, the 80s and 90s as strongly as we do today. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs, so it wasn't like I grew up, you know, in, in the middle of, of nature, but we always had, you know, a yard to plan and, and there was a creek that ran through yards we could play down there. And then my parents would take us camping or um, to the beach or, you know, up north in places like that. So I think, you know, then th- they were very big advocates for getting, getting outside. So I, I didn't really have a consciousness about it, though, until probably until I was in college even, um, because I, I, don't, I don't remember being very connected to sort of any kind of environmental cause in high school, which is very different than a lot of my students who have embraced it much earlier. But I think it was in college that I got really exposed and both personally, but also as something that I could study and research and, and work in as a career. And then your research, you also mentioned something about migration. I don't really understand what you mean there. Mm -hmm. What is, what is, what is, I understand what animal migration is, bird migration, but what does it mean from the environmental research and and Mm -hmm. that you're doing? Well, so where where I work in, um, my research is in Southeast Asia and Cambodia, and we've been looking at, there's in that part of the world, there's a, a lot of migration from agricultural areas to cities. In, at a very different time scale than, than the United States. And so we've been looking at that type of migration and identify, trying to identify how it's affected by environmental change. So as people who live in areas that are dependent on the land for farming and for subsistence, what happens when water becomes less available, when soil becomes less productive, and how does that influence decisions to um, leave agriculture, leave their families in, in villages and go to the cities to work as urban laborers in, in construction and in, in garment factories and um, other places that, you know, that affect their household structure and their livelihoods. And so that's, that's what I mean by migration. There's, there's other people who study more specifically 
environmental migration, which would be in all over the world, including the US, where they look at how people move from places following hurricanes and other shapes of storms, but that's a little bit different than what, what I'm doing. Well, it uh, sounds very interesting. And I'm wondering, you know, how did you pursue that? Oftentimes for women who are as accomplished as you are, there are either people like them who are doing similar things and they're falling into that track or they have um, somebody that's um, helping to push them there. Were you forging a new path, a, a, your own path, or were there others around you that you said, oh, gee, this is something that I want to follow because that's interesting. So-and-so that I know very well is doing it. Yeah, I, I don't think that I really came to it so much that way. I mean, my research team is all uh, men, actually, except for, except for me, but, uh, but I, I kind of came to this project through collaborative efforts where people I knew were already working in the area, and they came to me and said that they were looking for some more um, environmental research, and that's how I I came to it. But I, I will say that um, I think that just more broadly speaking, you know, my parents were really you know, they really embraced and believed in the American dream. And it, it, I think given the part of the world that they're from, Korea and Pakistan, I wanted to learn more about Asia and to study it more. Probably a little bit later, I, I did that. I think that, you know, they worked very hard to provide for us. And, and I think especially for my dad coming from Pakistan, he was really committed to um, ensuring that my sister and I and my mom too were, were fully educated and formed and independent and in making, making our choices. So I think that that in some ways really influenced my desire to study, you know, to do research in Asia. And there's a lot of my research, there's um, so much of it involves women and the decisions that women make because most of the people that work in, in the city and garment factories are women who, who leave their villages and go work, um, often leave their children and go work as well. So I think there's, there's it's all connected, um, might not have been as intentional as, as it seems. So, <laughs> so I think that, that that has influenced my research interests for sure. So is so that intentionality um, wasn't there. It does, it does seem very connected yeah. in terms of like you laid it out um, ahead of time. So as you think about, you know, the study, obviously you're following very interesting um, topics that ha um, have a big impact on um, the environment, both here in Chicago, as well as um, across the globe. But do you think about your career progression in terms of what you pursue next or your next faculty appointment or your next, what, what your research is going to be associated with? How do you think about that for yourself? Or is it more that you're just sort of focused on what you're doing day to day and the next project emerges or institute um, that you need to be associated with comes across um, your plate? Yeah, I think it's a combination of those things. Where I am today is not really what I had set out to do when I was um, in graduate school. I had different intentions there, but because circumstances and professional and personal reasons, and I think my career's evolved more organically. Um, that said, I do think that there's a combination of sort of building of things and collaborations and partnerships to create sort of that next project or the next initiative. Um, and then there's other things that, you know, the opportunity is less cultivated. Something comes along and there's enough interest in it that we could take it and build it into what we want to see it become. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity that's cultivated, but also there's always trying to build within certain constraints. But overall, I think I'm, I'm pretty fortunate not to have faced too much adversity along the way that, that others have. But I do think there's there's always some intentionality, but you can only um, stay on your path 
without getting bumped off of it for, for very long. And then you have to either take another path or try to get back to it. So I think that's probably the case with, with most people is that your intentions um, and where you end up are you know, not that clear cut. No, but you also had, um, you had support, you had family expectations um, to help guide you in choices that you've made. You know, you mentor a lot of women, you have um, a, a number of students that you interact with. What advice do you give them as they plan for their, whether it's research journeys, career journeys, or do, you, do you suggest to them that they plan it out um, more specifically than perhaps you did? Or do you see these types of options um, becoming available to anyone, what would you suggest? Yeah, yeah, this is um, this is kind of a big, a big, a question I think about a lot now. I think you know when I was pretty young, growing up, I, I tried very hard not to stand out or draw attention to myself. It just I already felt different enough growing up in a place where, you know, nobody was, very few people were like looked like me or were like me or like my parents, and so I think that I've had to really sort of battle that later, and I still find myself doing that at times where, um, you know, I, I'm don't want to rock the boat and, and try to deal with it internally or deal with it in some other way. And I think that's a very difficult place for, for women in particular and, and, and also in academic and other environments too, where some of the leadership tends to be concentrated among men. And so I think with my, my students, um, I just try to help them find their place and their voice and really focus on what they want to do. And I think for, for a lot of you know undergraduate students, that's one of the hard things is that they you know, our students are extremely motivated. They want to do everything and trying to figure out where you can channel your efforts so you don't burn out, you know, and so you don't, um, you know, college is hard enough as it is. So trying to do everything while you're taking your classes, while you're doing your research and, and you know, whatever you have going on in your family life, college is not the end, right? So that you can focus on a few things and, and keep building and, and keep taking opportunities along the way. So you don't have to try to do everything at one time. So how, how do you advise people to find their voice? The, the comment that you made about sort of like not wanting to rock the boat, mm -hmm. that is a very, very, you know, typical thing for a woman doesn't yeah. want to rock the boat, draw attention um, to yourself. Yet that is a, that is an artificial barrier that um, women are putting in front of themselves. Right. So how, how do you push people to something that might be uncomfortable and allow them to do it in a way that is finding their own voice? Yeah, I think it's, I, I agree that, that that it's somewhat of an artificial barrier. I think that sometimes we just find other ways to use our voice in order to be ultimately more productive, which is unfortunate. That's not the way it should be, but um, sometimes it's the way it has to be if we don't want to necessarily alienate ourselves. But I think that one thing that I is really important and I would advise my students and I, I would advise my younger self to do is find your community of, of people. You know, there's certainly empowerment in talking to people who are facing the same kind of challenges as you are. And there's empowerment in, in finding people who together you have a stronger voice or you can, you know, give each other the confidence to use your voice. And so I think that it was probably after college where I really, I mean, I've always had a great network of friends in high school and in college, but it was probably after college that you know, I, I hadn't still really embraced or, or sought out my, you know, my ethnic or my cultural roots for wanting to fit into what seemed more American to me. So I think that, you know, now I certainly try to do that. And after college, I tried to do that. And I, I see it 
you know, I appreciate that my, my daughter is already much more in tune and curious about her family and ancestors than, than I was. And I think that forming your community really empowers you to, to use your voice and to feel confident in, your, in yourself. That's great advice. I, I really like that and appreciate that, Sabina. I wanted to ask you about, you know, we're coming hopefully out of this pandemic. It's been an incredible year on every level, actually. But you know so much about the environment. You know so much about how important it is for women, you know, and the research that you do. What are the connections with the environment that we should all be thinking about as we move back into sort of focusing on our professional careers um, in a different way? And are there things about just the research that you do that you might advise people generally? Um, because I think this is where we're all talking about mental health and mm -hmm. additional levels of stress. Um, I think a lot about women in terms of sometimes the lost year of, um, you know, women becoming further behind in aggregate in terms of professional development. I'm worried about that. So just your thoughts in that particular area. Yeah, yeah, I certainly have seen all of the reports and research about how many women dropped out of the workforce during the pandemic. And, and so much of that is because of the lack of childcare or, you know, just having to navigate you know, family and personal situations, taking care of elderly parents or others who have gotten sick. And so I think if we can really use that as evidence of how much we need to support women in their careers and, you know, if their, their career is in the office or if their career is um, at home taking care of their family, either way, we need to find better ways to, to support women. And, and so I think certainly thinking about, about childcare thinking about mentorship and guidance and, and mental access to mental health care and things that are extremely important that we need to do at a societal level. Uh, in terms of our personal work, I think we all suffer a bit from, from not taking breaks. And in, in many ways, the remote environment has made that, that even harder because you've got, you know, you're not separated between your work and, and home environment. And, and at least for me, I feel like there's twice as many meetings because we don't have to try to get everyone in the same place at one time. Um, but so I think we just have to personally really find the spaces in which we can step away, if, even for a minute, even for a moment, and, and try to do it in a way that doesn't sacrifice sleep or sacrifice something else that makes you feel guilty. Right? Because I think that's a big part of it. If I go off and do something by myself, I feel guilty for not doing something else. And I think that's a real challenge that women face um, and a pressure that we put on ourselves um, and also recognizing that some people, you know, just don't have the time to take these breaks because of work, because of childcare needs or, and others don't have access to the, the outdoors, right? So if we, you know, there's a lot of advice where we tell people to get outside, get outdoors. I think that's even a slogan, but we have sometimes overlook that people don't have access to the outdoors or to safe spaces or to clean air, or clean water. And so I think that's recognizing all of that as we come out of the pandemic. Um, if they've learned anything from it is just, uh, you know, trying to create more opportunities for people to have what, you know, others might have had access to during this pandemic time and others have not. I think all of those comments and, and that advice is, um, first of all, I agree with it. I, I think that is fantastic. And I'm curious, Sabina, so you are naturally giving that, you're giving that advice to your students, you know, as a leader who understands the connection of these different issues. You also said, though, that you work with other faculty, mostly men. How do you advise them to give similar types of advice? Do they have the same level of awareness, you know, of the perhaps different pressures um, 
for women and you feel that they are giving similar, similar advice with the same level of passion, perhaps that you are? I think some do, but not, not all. So how do you, how do you help them? How do you encourage it? I mean, it, are you finding people are receptive to it and able to amplify it? Cause I think it's important for beyond inspiring women like you, but others to emulate those same types of encouraging um, words of advice. Yeah. Well, I think I could certainly do more too. And I, I think about this often, like maybe, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time trying to build environmental initiatives at the university. And I often think about, you know, are there ways that I should be focus my efforts on building initiatives that support female students and women and, you know, first generation students, the university is doing a lot, but I'm not directly involved in a lot of those. And so a lot of mine comes through peer to peer mentoring or, or um, mentor to peer uh, conversations. And so I, I often wonder if there's a way we can organize these efforts a little bit better. I think in some ways I find that creating this organized system also creates barriers for people who feel reluctant to join organizations or get involved. And so to the extent that we can do this individually, it's, it's a much bigger proposition, but I think that we can reach people a little bit better. And we can also reach the people that maybe don't seek out those types of organized initiatives or programs to participate in. That's fantastic. Sabina, this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate it. As we close out here, any last closing advice for other perhaps younger, inspiring and aspiring um, women that you might want to give? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that one is to just take time for yourselves, even if it's brief moments and, and also just find your own voice and find your own place. So what inspires some women um, may not inspire others, or if, you know, I've had, I've had people try to inspire other women by saying, oh, well, I've had, you know, three kids and I've had, um, you know, become the CEO of my company. And, um, you know, is that inspiring? It's absolutely inspiring to some people, but to others, it makes them even feel even more, um, you know, challenged. So I, I would say to think about the inspiration of what, what it is that you need and what it is that you want to accomplish and to seek out people who can, who can sort of help guide you with that. Fantastic. This has been an excellent, inspiring women conversation with Dr. Sabina Shake, and thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.